Good early afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. We're happy you could join us today. And we're very happy to have Shane Harris here with us to discuss his new book, The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. Uh, I'm Jim Harper. I'm director of uh, information policy studies here at Cato. Um, I'll, uh, I'll introduce our, our, our author and discussant. Uh, Shane will speak for, for 20, 25, 30 minutes. Uh, Julian Sanchez will speak for about 10 minutes. We'll discuss among ourselves a bit, then we'll go out to you and, and hopefully get some good questions from the audience, followed by lunch upstairs in our winter garden. Shane Harris is a staff correspondent for National Journal, where he writes about intelligence, homeland security, and counterterrorism. He does some excellent reporting there. And Shane has twice been named a finalist for the prestigious Livingston Awards for Young Journalists, which honor the best journalists in America under the age of 35. I've just confirmed again that he's still under 35, and I, I hate these kids who are doing so well. <laughs> His work has, has appeared, of course, in a host of top publications. Shane graduated from Wake Forest University with a BA in politics in 1998. And researching his bio, I found that uh, he helped he helped uh, form and, and served as the artistic director of a sketch comedy troupe when he lived in Los Angeles. So I hope that he'll, he'll weave some sketch comedy into his presentation of the book today. Julian Sanchez, my colleague, uh, will discuss will discuss the book. Uh, he's a research fellow here at Cato and a contributing editor for Reason Magazine. He also contributes regularly to the Economist Democracy in America blog. Before joining Cato, Julian was the Washington editor for Ars Technica, which is a, an excellent technology news site. Prior to that, an assistant editor at Reason. Julian studied philosophy and political science at New York University before moving to D.C. in 2002. He's a top advocate, really, for restoring civil liberties uh, in, the, in this technological age. He and I work on many of the same issues, and he's a living example of the spur of competition that we, we argue for here at, at the Cato Institute. Uh, we, we regularly challenge each other, and I have to do better work, confound it, because of Julian. So uh, let's begin with Shane Harris. Uh, please join me in welcoming him here to speak about his book. Um, yeah, a career in sketch comedy, I think, probably prepared me for writing about intelligence in the United States government. So, um, uh, Jim, thanks very much for having me, and thanks to Cato um, uh, for hosting me in the event. This is a, a real thrill for me, and thank you all for coming out. Um, this is a, an unusual experience, too, in that I don't think I've ever been on a panel where the moderator actually makes an appearance briefly. Uh, in the book, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, but Jim really has done <clears throat> um, very important work on these issues over the years, and uh, there's a, there's a bit in the book, uh, particularly about a um, a very influential paper that he wrote with Jeff Jonas, who's one of the main characters in the book that was published by Cato, um, and it really plays a significant role uh, in a lot of these issues. So I just wanted to draw your attention to that, and, and to you know uh, <clears throat> recognize Jim for the contributions that he's made as well. Um, I started writing this book actively about two years ago, but really the reporting and the research sort of stretched back till roughly after 9-11 uh, when I was working as a technology reporter at a magazine here in Washington called Government Executive. And at that time, the sort of theme that quickly developed at least in technology, but like more broadly speaking in the intelligence community, was that the government had failed to connect the dots about acts of terrorism and that there was all of this information that was sitting siloed in various repositories that had gone untouched and unnoticed and unfiltered. Um, and this is sort of how I kind of got onto the beat, if you will, of writing about technology where it intersects with intelligence and counterterrorism was sort of with this theme that was developing back then. Um, so a lot of the work that I did in those years kind of 
even forms the bedrock of understanding in this book. Um, but really, this is a story about people. Um, the Watchers refers to, as the title, refers to five key individuals who I uh, pluck out in the story as having been really kind of at the center of this 25-year-long quest to try and divine patterns of information about future crises and attacks by looking at very large sets of data. These are sort of the people connecting the dots, if you like. And what drove me to write this piece as a narrative as opposed to writing about the systems of collection and the, uh, the processes of information um, was really my interest in um, the people who were doing this and what motivated them and what their life story was. And I thought that to make this story accessible and not have it be an abstract discussion about technology and about things and bits and bytes, that it was best to do that through the story of the people involved. Um, I often say that writing about intelligence in general uh, is one of the hardest things to do in journalism because it is, after all, a domain where people are actively trying to keep information from coming to light. Um, the analogy that I often use is if you want to know what it's like to be an intelligence reporter, imagine that you're a theater critic and your editor has assigned you to cover the opening of a new play. And you sit in the auditorium and the lights go down and the play begins except the curtain never actually comes up. And instead, you are listening for snatches of muffled dialogue or people dropping plates or crashing glasses, trying to sort of divine what's happening behind that curtain. And it's not always easy to do, but we still manage to do a fairly good job of piecing together these fragments into some kind of a mosaic of a story. Um, occasionally, though, someone will actually come out from behind the curtain and offer a very rare behind-the-scenes look at how they see the story unfolding. Um, and it was really through those kinds of experiences and relationships that I was able to write about the human aspect of this story by getting close to a lot of the individual players uh, involved. And that was often very exciting and often a, somewhat of an intimidating challenge as a journalist who is trying to tell a larger story and not simply one through the eyes of a single person. Um, but there is a key figure in this book who sits at the center of the narrative and also at the center of what is this controversy that we're talking about between uh, security through data on the one hand and the inherent risk that that poses to civil liberties and privacy? And I'd like to talk to you a bit about him and the role that he's played. Um, I first met John Poindexter in March of 2004. Um, he probably needs no introduction to this audience, but the, you'll remember the brief bio on him. Uh, he was Ronald Reagan's national security advisor in the mid-'80s and was the chief architect of the Iran-Contra affair. It was actually Poindexter's idea to merge a, an operation in Iran to sell weapons in exchange for hostages being held in Lebanon with a plan to covertly provide funding to anti-communist rebels in Nicaragua, the Contras. So Iran-Contra was sort of his mastermind. But Poindexter actually had come to the White House with a rather different mission a few years earlier. Um, he was a technologist and a fairly uh, ingenious one. He had been brought over onto the NSC staff as a military aide in the early 80s to outfit the Situation Room with modern communications equipment that would allow it to actually function as something of the kind of technological nerve center we all imagine it to be today. Back then it wasn't. Wendexter actually introduced email to the White House, um, sort of a technological visionary, if you will, working in this bureaucracy. Um, he had come back to government after the 9-11 attacks with an idea to do what really is the watcher's kind of central mission, to gather up information, to sift through it for patterns and connect the dots about future crises. But what he had proposed was something that I think arguably went farther uh, and was more revolutionary than anyone had dared to propose at that time. 
Um, he brought an idea back to the Defense Department that he called total information awareness. And the idea here was sort of premised on two concepts. One was that, yes, it's true, the government had all of this information and telling clues about the 9-11 hijackers and its various databases. Yes, the FBI and the CIA weren't doing a good job of sharing information. Yes, we had some telling clues. However, these individuals who were in the United States were moving around in society, and they were leaving digital footprints as they opened bank accounts, as they rented cars, as they traveled on airplanes, as they uh, leased apartment buildings or apartments. Uh, and Poindexter's idea was, why can't we get access to that information as well? Why wouldn't we put that in the mix? The idea was struck some, obviously, as a traumatic overreach, and it certainly was farther, I think, than anyone had actually proposed, at least in public, going before. But he had a second component that I think did not receive as much attention. And this was the idea of taking this very powerful technology that he wanted to build to watch people and to watch data and to actually turn it back on the analysts who were using the total information awareness system to effectively watch the watchers, to create immutable logs of every keystroke, of every file that they accessed, such that any oversight body would know at any moment what government spies were actually spying on and what they were seeing. And a second component of this was to use data encryption to actually anonymize information being held in these databases such that an analyst looking at this sea of dots before him would not actually know who they were connected to. Poindexter wanted to know, was there a way to sort of acknowledge that information was out there and we should get access to it, but could we use technology to sort of really inject or even bake in, if you like, some level of privacy and protection that hadn't existed before? Um, it was a very, very complex idea. I'm not sure it ever would have worked. Um, I do know that John Poindexter was hardly the right messenger for this idea, particularly coming as it did uh, so soon after the 9-11 attacks and at a time when people were becoming increasingly skeptical about the Bush administration's overreach in the name of homeland security. Um, Poindexter did not last long in this endeavor, um, nor did the Total Information Awareness Program, at least in a public form. Uh, by the end of 2003, he had resigned from government again and had gone back to, I think, effectively most people thought, to crawl back into whatever hole he had been living in since the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, and Total Information Awareness was publicly defunded by Congress near the end of 2003. So I had been kind of riveted by this idea, this rather bold, hugely controversial idea that had blown up into this rather uh, enormous public relations scandal, certainly for Poindexter. But what I wanted to know was, what is the idea here at base? Would it work? And why is he proposing it? And I had tried many times as a reporter to get an interview with him and was unsuccessful uh, in that attempt. Um, it happened that in March of 2004, after about six months of him being on the outside of government again back in private life, we were both invited to a conference at Syracuse. Uh, and I sort of took the opportunity to go up and try and meet him face to face. Um, it was a rather interesting moment, actually. I'd never actually seen uh, a picture of him taken, except for one, after the Iran-Contra hearings. So it was even, I wasn't even really sure what he looked like. I mean, Poindexter had sort of become this J.D. Salinger figure of American intelligence, something of a recluse. Um, but when I did meet him, uh, he opened up the conversation with an apology. And he said, I want to apologize to you for not being available for the interview request that you had given me. But Don Rumsfeld, old friend of his, um, had forbidden me from talking to the press after the public uh, reaction to the program and given the Iran-Contra business. He always calls it, by the way, the Iran-Contra business. It's never the affair or the scandal. It's the business. Um, so he was somewhat uh, taken aback, I think, by this 
rather outraged public response, which I found sort of telling that he didn't quite put two and two together about why people would have suspicions about this program called Total Information Awareness with him in charge of it. And he said, you know, I, um, he said, I read what you wrote. And I said, okay. And he said, you know, and I didn't like all of it, but what I did think you were doing was trying to understand what we were about and what our aims were. And so for that, I thought you did an accurate job. And I said, well, would you consider sitting down with me in the future sometime and doing a more extended interview on your life and on your times? And he said he would think about it. And about a week went by, and he called back and said, I've decided that I'll let you interview me on one condition, and that is that you have to do multiple interviews, come out to my house in Maryland, do several hours of interviews at a time, and we'll record everything, and it'll be on the record. Now, it's been said that one of the reasons why Poindexter did not fare well in the aftermath of Iran-Contra was that he did not understand how journalists think and how they work, and I know this to be true now, because anyone who thinks it is an onerous request to come hang out in the home of one of the most notorious political figures of the past quarter century and record the event um, doesn't really know what makes a reporter tick, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. Um, it was a rather extraordinary set of interviews that lasted for the better part of a month and culminated in a profile for government executive. And then a couple of years later, we began a series of more in-depth interviews that totaled 14 in all that form uh, Poindexter is part of the story in the book. Um, I joke often that it sort of was this bizarre kind of Tuesdays with Maury kind of experience where I'm not sure who was Mitch and who was Maury. But um, we did really form a rather unusual relationship for a reporter and a source. And what it allowed me to do was to really place him in the context of this much longer narrative that does not actually begin with 9-11 and does not begin with his idea for total information awareness. It actually stretches back much further. Um, the book begins, and the watcher's quest for this kind of brass ring of intelligence really begins in October of 1983. On the morning of October 23rd, a suicide bomber drove a truck laden with explosives into the barracks of the 24th Marine Amphibious Unit, which was stationed at the Beirut International Airport as part of a peacekeeping mission. The Marines had been in country there for several months. Um, the bombing killed 241 men, most of whom were asleep at the time, and it really introduced Americans to the idea of religious suicidal terrorism. This was, not so, this was something quite new, quite novel and shocking at the time. Um, Poindexter was literally on call the morning of the bombing and actually was awoken uh, uh, by a phone call from the uh, Situation Room when he was asleep at his house. Uh, and it really fell to him in the immediate aftermath, along with some other senior officials, to piece together what exactly had happened and why this had occurred, why this surprise attack. What he found was, in an eerie parallels to 9-11 and the narrative preceding that attack, a number of clues and signals that had gone unfused and unnoticed. From the spring of 1983 until October, the month of the bombing, the intelligence community had actually fielded more than 100 individual warnings about car bombings in Beirut. None of them were followed up upon, and none of them were fused to try and form a picture of that activity. In the spring of 83, the embassy, the U.S. Embassy, had actually been hit by a bomber. More than 60 individuals were killed, including most of the CIA station in Lebanon. FBI investigators at the time went in and examined the bomb, and what they found was a very sophisticated, um, crude, but actually rather sophisticated device that signaled to them that a rather sophisticated terrorist outfit had been operating in the city and was deliberately targeting Americans. That report was never shared 
with commanders at the airport so that they could fortify the defenses for the Marines. A third piece of information came in the form of an intercept of a phone call by the National Security Agency, a phone call placed from an Iranian source in the embassy in Damascus to a terrorist outfit in Lebanon at the time, directing them to undertake a, quote, spectacular attack against the Marines in Beirut. Again, this information was never fused and it was never shared. Poindexter sort of became one of the first people to really dedicate himself to this idea of lashing together these different agencies, both in terms of the systems they were using to collect information to store it, but also um, the bureaucracy to try and wrestle this far-flung counterterrorism operation that there was at the time into some sort of coherent whole that could actually try and predict these attacks before they began. And so in, in going back and investigating this, what I realized was that if there is a larger theme to this story, it doesn't begin on 9-11. It begins in the early 80s, and Poindexter was clearly a major player in that. At some point, though, he sort of departs the scene, and my next question was, where does that put us now? What does this sort of dream of the Watchers look like, and who are the major players today pursuing it? Uh, it was in 2005, about a year after I first met Poindexter, um, that I discovered that the National Security Agency, and particularly its director at the time, Michael Hayden, had sort of picked up where Poindexter had left off. He had been gone from government by this time. Um, you'll recall that in December of 2005, the New York Times had a groundbreaking story that revealed that President Bush had secretly authorized the NSA to intercept Americans' phone calls and emails without going through a special intelligence court that normally grants warrants to do that. What I discovered in my reporting, though, was that NSA had actually been looking for more than just the content of phone calls and emails, that in the months after 9-11, they'd actually gone to the major telecommunications carriers in the United States and asked them to hand over details about their, call, about their customers' calling patterns. Um, in the industry, this is called a CDR, or a call detail record, or a customer detail record. You know it in some form as what shows up basically as your phone bill every month. NSA wanted to know, in the aggregate, who was calling who, how long were these calls lasting, what were the patterns of communication, and could they find and detect particular signals that looked like terrorist communications from this sea of noise. This started to sound very familiar, and in fact, the more I dug into it, what I realized was that NSA was essentially pursuing, in secret, many of the ideas for total information awareness that Poindexter had been talking about in public. As it turned out, NSA had actually been experimenting with some of the data analysis tools that Poindexter and his team had been trying to build, and unbeknownst to them, had taken them and used them to try and decipher patterns in this massive set of call detail records they were getting from the telecom companies. The results were quite troubling and rather instructive and illuminating, I think. NSA actually had so much data that it was collecting that when it tried to run it through these software programs, the tools literally crashed. They fried the circuits. There was so much information they were trying to process at one time. NSA seemed to have an answer for this problem, which was that, first and foremost, we need to collect all the information we can and leave no stone unturned so that we don't miss anything. And we will put off the much harder question of figuring out how to make sense of it. Unfortunately, that never happened. Um, NSA actually became, I think, it's quite fair to say, obsessed with collection of information. 
and and look for ways not to try and narrow down the universe of data, but to try and literally pour whole amounts of information at once into systems that would make sense of it. One particular tool they became rather enamored with was what's called a graphic visualization program. And basically what this is is you take a lot of information and dump it into a program that displays it as a series of dots representing people, places, and events, and then draws lines between them trying to construct a diagram of how all these signals are connected. Well, when these displayed, and there's a picture of it in the book that you'll see, George Bush actually standing in front of one of these, they literally, it looks like a ray, a series of rays emanating from a center. And the overlapping lines are so dense and so complex that I don't know how a human being could make much sense of it looking at it. You'd have to be specially trained to do it. Um, critics of this approach had a name for this sort of all-seeing program. They like to call it the BAG, which stood for the Big Ass Graph. The BAG succeeded not at producing pinpoint analysis of particular terrorist or predicting attacks, but at coughing up what other analysts like to refer to as hairballs, these sort of tangled, dense masses of information that really didn't tell people where to look for specific threats. Um, in one of my interviews, I talked to a uh, former senior CIA official who was actually responsible for managing the drone program of targeted killings. Uh, uh, overseas for some period of time, who was once presented with one of these hairball diagrams by an analyst at the NSA. And his response was most interesting. He said to him, I don't need you to tell me this kind of information. I only need to know one thing, and that is whose ass do I put a Hellfire missile on? NSA had collected this much information because information in a bureaucracy equals power. And there was a compulsive need to hoard it rather than make sense of it. And that has spread, I think, across the intelligence community today. What has happened is we have spent billions of dollars, tremendous political capital. There has been a tremendous lack of, or I should say, undermining of credibility in government to produce a regime of official surveillance that is very, very good at collecting dots, but unfortunately not very good at connecting them. There are two major consequences that I see to this tremendous overcollection and underconnection, if you like. First, there's, of course, the potential for a massive invasion of Americans' privacy and infringement of liberty. And we do know now from reports and from the NSA's own internal audits that as recently as January of 2009, in the course of the agency trying to collect huge amounts of email traffic on presumably foreign targets, inadvertently swept in thousands of Americans' email conversations as well, people who they were not supposed to be targeting under the law. And to give you an idea of almost how passive this system has become, NSA didn't even know it had collected on the wrong people until weeks later when it went back and reviewed the logs. The failure to connect, it seems to me, is obvious as well, and that is the risk that intelligence agencies will repeat history, and as they did before the 9-11 attacks and before the Beirut bombing, will again miss the actual warning signals of a real attack in the offing. And we saw this happen, I think, as recently as the Christmas Day events. As you're all aware, on December 25th, a young Nigerian man named Umar Farouk Abdul-Matalib boarded a Northwest Airlines flight from Amsterdam to Detroit with a bomb strapped to his underwear. Uh, we all know it didn't go off, and he has since been apprehended. But this is an instructive lesson. What did the government know about Abdul Muttalib before his attempted bombing? First, in November of 2009, his father had shown up at the U.S. Embassy in Abuja, Nigeria, and told officials that he was afraid his son had gone to Yemen to join the ranks of Islamic radicals. 
Also, the National Security Agency, who was monitoring al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen at the time, had picked up phone calls mentioning a Nigerian who had been enlisted for a new plan. A third telling piece of information that went nowhere. After Abdul Muttalib's father showed up at the embassy, officials there added Abdul Muttalib's name to a master database of known or suspected terrorists in Washington that now stands at half a million names. Nothing was ever done to follow up on it, and very little attempt was made to actually find out if Abdul Muttalib had even been issued a visa, which would tell us whether he was on his way to the United States or was already here. We find this same pattern playing out again in these events as we did with 9-11 and in 1983. Right now, the analysts who are responsible for collecting this kind of information and trying to fuse it together are simply drowning in information and cannot keep up with it. People I interviewed who work at the NCTC, at this counterterrorism center, have said that they receive on average between four to 8,000 names per day of suspected terrorists or leads that they're expected to follow. They themselves will tell you there are not that many suspected or known terrorists actively plotting against the United States on a given day, and yet they are expected to follow up on this information. The system has been geared towards collection. The technology to connect all these dots does not exist. There is no Google for all of the systems that house these different kinds of data. There is no way to sit down at a master computer and type in the name Abdul Muttalib and know every piece of intelligence that we might have on him. <clears throat> this is what I mean when I say in the book that we are witnessing the rise of an American surveillance state, and it's very unique to our circumstances. It has become the default position of the intelligence community to collect as much information as possible for the broad purposes of defending against terrorism and other national security threats and to put off the more complicated task of trying to make sense of it. And in this arrangement, privacy and privacy protection has become a secondary concern. Um, I actually propose that as a matter of policy, we try something radical. Perhaps we accept the idea that information is out there, that technically and legally there are very few impediments to the government or anyone else obtaining it. We have focused most of our laws when it comes to surveillance on the acquisition of information and paid relatively little attention to what government agencies actually do with it when they get it. How do we know that it's not being abused? How do we know that it's not being underused? I don't know whether or not John Poindexter had the solution to this problem, and I should say that he and I part ways on a number of his more controversial approaches. But what I do know is that he courted a debate willingly on this that I fear like we feel that we never really had fully. And it is, I think, at base not just this debate over privacy versus liberty, which is often something of a false dichotomy, but this question of how do we exist in an information society like this, and how can we use technology, if at all, to protect ourselves and protect our rights. As controversial as his ideas were, and as many of them were followed in spirit by NSA and other agencies, there's actually a piece of that research that was never continued. Um, in 2003, when Congress publicly defunded TIA, there was a provision worked into language in the Defense Department Appropriations Act that actually allowed the program to be broken into component pieces and transferred into the black budget of the intelligence community. TIA existed under different names, run by none other than the National Security Agency for many years. But when officials decided to adopt Poindexter's program, they took every piece of it save for one, which was the research into privacy protection. The data analysis tools, the data connection to collection tools, they wanted that. The privacy, they wanted no part of. I think that now, in the relative calm before another attack, is the time to start asking these hard questions about how we strike this balance. 
And I think, unfortunately, we put off that discussion at our peril. Um, of all the people I interviewed for this book, and there were hundreds over the years, regardless of where they sat on the political spectrum or their ideas about whether this kind of data mining actually works, on one point they all agreed. If there is another attack in the United States on the order of 9-11, this question about balancing security and liberty will become strictly academic. The government will come down decisively on the side of security because that's what it knows how to do. The government will collect on a scale that we have never seen. It will be clumsy. It will be driven by urgency and by fear. And then you will see, I believe, many of the infringements on individual liberty that many of us have only worried about to this point. Simply put, our government will collect first and it will ask questions later. And when that happens, it should come as a surprise to no one. Thank you. Julian Sanchez. Well, it's uh, great to have an opportunity to comment on a fantastic book by someone whose work I've long admired and relied on, both in my previous life as a journalist and, and as an analyst. Um, having said that, I, I figure I should just get out of the way um, some of my reservations about the book, I, uh, and, and I think you know, this probably will, will not come as a huge surprise. I, there's a scene in which one of the watchers uh, he writes about um, is addressing or briefing a, a, an array of intelligence community folks, and he, he sort of muses... As as, uh, uh, as Shane has us learn uh, that these guys have become so used to relying on a few kinds of intelligence sources that they've gotten too close too close to the target um, and lost perspective. And there's a really clear sense in which this is John Poindexter's book, um, and so the picture of him we get is throughout. I think uh, his his sort of heroic self conception. Um, there, there are times when, when I think reading it, uh, you do feel a bit like if it were a YouTube clip, it would be titled "Leave John Poindexter Alone." Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it would be one thing if that were just a question of style. I think there are places where uh, this causes the book to sort of pass over things where I think most readers would raise an eyebrow uh, in, in terms of the false information provided to Congress during Iran Contra. Um, you know, the, the account of that we get is sort of John, John Poindexter's claim that he was, you know, awfully busy and he didn't, he didn't really look at what he was submitting. And it turns out uh, some of what Congress got was, was false and, you know, he was just so burdened trying to, to do good things for America that, uh, you know, that slipped through the cracks. And, and we just sort of move on. Um, and there are just a handful of places where I would have loved to see, um, you know, a, a, a bit more of a, a step back. Um, we, we get an account of the clippership debate of the 90s about encryption. And we learn um, how panicked the intelligence community was, Poindexter and others, about the coming tide of cheap encryption technology and uh, how intelligence services really needed to ramp up to be able to deal with this. Um, and I think it's worth, you know, sort of, again, sort of stopping, looking back, and taking note of the fact that um, when, at least in, in the criminal side, and Title III surveillance, um, they've started tracking since 2000 how many times um, they encounter encryption uh, when they're trying to do surveillance and how often it's a problem. Um, I think there were two instances in 2008 where that occurred. Uh, in neither case did it render them unable to actually retrieve the communication. Since they've been tracked, I mean, I know between 2000 and 2005, there were a few dozen cases. I think they recorded one um, where that was actually a problem. Um, you know, again, uh, when they're talking about trying to sell their vision of this sort of vast uh, machinery of, of pattern analysis, you often have this sense, again, because you're reading it almost through their eyes, uh, that 
the doubts, at least within the establishment, um, are just sort of signs of, of a kind of uh, myopic technophobia. You know, the, the people who are objecting don't get it. Uh, when privacy concerns are raised, uh, they're, they're, well, not really raised, they're, they're howled or expressed in uh, outrage and apoplexy uh, by, by you know, people who are described as humorless. And so I think um, throughout, it's, it's necessary to sort of step back and recognize that we're getting a, um, the world through a, a Poindexter lens. Um, with that out of the way, I, I want to express my, my borderline surprise at, at how much I found to agree with, even in uh, the thought of, of John Poindexter, because I, I do agree that, in a way, what we've gotten at this point is the worst of both worlds. Uh, that is to say, um, the fundamental activities uh, involved in TIA have been split up and renamed. Um, but the fundamental shift from target-based to uh, you know, population-based or data stream-based surveillance is, I think, underway, and, and there's no real going back from that. Um, the problem is that I think thus far our policy debate has sought to carry on as though nothing has changed. We've talked about modernizing uh, you know, in the sense of, of trying to let the intel community cope with all this changing technology and the new difficulties it presents. But what we've essentially tried to do is expand an oversight framework that was built for individualized searches and stretch it to accommodate a radically different kind of surveillance. And that's not going to work. You cannot take a, a vast uh, data mining or communications mining operation and shoehorn it into a framework that's meant to deal with surveillance of particular, uh, of particular subjects and expect it to work. Um, I also think there's a lot to be said for the shift from acquisition uh, as the locus of what we think of as, as where our oversight needs to be activated. Um, you know, there's a, a just to sort of step, step back, a quick sort of legal history of the Fourth Amendment. Um, it used to be that um, warrantless wiretapping was normal because the Supreme Court had decided wiretapping didn't need warrants because wiretapping was not a search. Um, and the reason they thought this, um, this is in the 20s in a case called Olmstead, was that uh, trespass, common law trespass, had always been the trigger, the tripwire that activated Fourth Amendment scrutiny. Property was the tripwire, and if there was not a property boundary crossing, they didn't see privacy interests as being implicated. And as technology changed, they realized that that conception of property, much as we, uh, of privacy, much as we like using property to, to weigh uh, balancing interests uh, at Cato, um, was not adequate, that it was missing something important about privacy. And... Uh, you know, it took about 40 years for them to realize that they'd, they'd missed something important and to shift the tripwires to say it's not just when a property boundary is crossed, but when, uh, you know, essentially information in which someone has a reasonable expectation of privacy is revealed. Uh, but that still has a tripwire that is set at the point of acquisition, and our whole system is set up this way. It's when you get the information, when you acquire it, um, that some kind of oversight or scrutiny has to be activated. And the problem is, you know, in part, that even the moment of acquisition is no longer as clear a point as it once was because of technology. So think of the way NSA's interception systems worked at the secret rooms and hubs we know they kept at the major telecommunications uh, uh, switches. They would, uh, there would be diversion from 
the main wire to a, a very sophisticated filtering system that the NSA had set up. Uh, well, at the point of diversion, is the communication acquired? Is it when the system begins churning through those communications that it's acquired? Does it matter whether it's filtering just the headers uh, of the email or the transactional information, pattern data, or uh, rather if they're going into the communication? Does it matter if they're filtering by voice print or by the words that are spoken? Uh, is it when it's recorded? Is it when it's, the recording is conveyed to a human who's able to listen to it? When is it acquired? Uh, you know, the, the boundaries we used to draw um, are, are, in a sense, radically problematized by the way technology has uh, in, in introduced an enormous amount of fuzziness into what seemed like an unambiguous term. And then, of course, there's the problem of what to do after. Is it just at the point of acquisition that we worry about uh, what's being done, that we need oversight? Um, and I think it's clear that the kind of analysis that he's talking about um, cannot effectively be overseen at the point of acquisition because the volume is simply too great. Um, and there are different kinds of privacy interests that are implicated at the post-acquisition point. Right? I mean, you can imagine an array of different kinds of data that are individually innocuous, maybe not even private. Uh, you know, someone makes a dinner reservation on open table, um, you know, goes to meet their date on the way, stops in, uses a credit card to buy a, you know, a box of prophylactics, heads to dinner, uh, you know, has a lovely conversation, drives home, passes through Easy Pass with, uh, with their date. They're carrying uh, their cell phones the whole time, which are, you know, pinging their locations. A lot of these activities are individually observed by members of the public. Um, plenty of them in isolation reveal nothing intimate. Strung together, these non-private pieces of information are, uh, reveal something extraordinarily intimate. Um, we can also think of social graph analysis. Um, in isolation, communications records, for instance, um, may, not be, or may not seem especially sensitive. Certainly that was uh, what the Supreme Court believed when they ruled that uh, the acquisition of simple metadata, telecommunications records, didn't require a probable cause warrant. Um, but as we learn, of course, that data can be used to begin to map social relationships, to map networks of communications, and potentially, uh, you know, clusters of group membership. And that implicates a totally different set of interest in expressive association. There's a rich line of Supreme Court cases involving the interest people have in their membership in different kinds of expressive groups. The Sort of, uh, seed of this line of cases uh, involved membership lists in the NAACP um, in, in a sort of southern state where being publicly identified as a member of the NAACP was unlikely to make you popular with your neighbors. Um, and so I think there, there are serious questions about whether we should be shifting our analysis to not just when data is collected but how it's used. Um, I have substantial doubts, let's say, about Poindexter's confidence in the ability of uh, the, the kind of technological solution he talked about to solve the problem indefinitely. Uh, I mean, I think an important point to make at the outset is that architecture changes everything, that the regulation of the state, that the limits on the state are not just a function of the rules in place at any given time, but of the architecture. Right. We could imagine that every house had to come built with cameras that were shut off, um, you know, but only turned on subject to a warrant. And if the rules are followed, 
then that yields the same result as it does currently in principle because they can install a, a camera or a, bug, a bugging device if they've got a warrant. Um, but you know, first, I think we all recognize that the architectural change uh, is worrisome regardless of the, you know, the, the nominal rules which, you know, in theory uh, remain the same. And then also it changes the way the state relates to, uh, you know, the population. It changes the uh, threshold at which that kind of surveillance becomes attractive. I also worry because uh, the idea of minimization and anonymization of data once collected as a safeguard is for a wide variety of reasons, I think, uh, highly brittle. Um, so minimization is something we use now uh, in a lot of different contexts. One is, is FISA surveillance, because again, we collect a lot of broad uh, uh, information, a lot of it not yet translated, and it's sort of retained for a while, and then the idea is it's supposed to be minimized. Uh, names of U.S. persons are removed, irrelevant data is removed. The problem is that what minimization means and how effective it is also changes with technology. So I'll give you an example. Um, there was a case in 2003 called U.S. v. Sitar, um, where uh, sort of terrorist defendants basically had been subject to FISA surveillance, and the government had retained about 5,000 calls. That is, 5,000 calls that hadn't been minimized. Uh, the thing is that the protocol for minimization dated from the 80s. Well, the end is they record everything, and then they'd only log the calls that they wanted to retain. Everything else was minimized, which meant that, you know, circa 1985, in practice, you couldn't retrieve it. It was in these sort of undifferentiated, uh, you know, records, and, it, you know, you just wouldn't know where it was, where it was to, to, to pull it out. Um, but technology changes the relevance of whether or not you've kept a log file. So in the Sitar case, uh, subject to disclosure obligations at trial, it turned out that they were able to produce not 5,000, but 85,000 audio files from that recording. So it turned out that the information that had been minimized could still be retrieved. And with you know, contemporary technology available to search through that data um, was, in fact, potentially as accessible as what had been retained. Um, I think there's also the point to be made that any sufficient large set of data sets cannot be anonymous. And there's an excellent paper by Paul Ohm uh, from about a year back called Broken Promises of Anonymity. And the point that's made here is that when you have enough different data sets and the technology to rapidly correlate them, you can always find uniquely identifying hooks in a purportedly anonymized data set that will fit into the gaps in the other data sets and allow it to be re-identified. So, uh, I mean, for example, if you have a, a, a data set that just identifies people by their birth year and their, and their um, zip code, it turns out if you have rich enough other data sets, that's enough to narrow each record down to one or two people. Um, data that seems innocuous and not identifying turns out with enough external data to be identifiable. Um, and so I, I worry about what uh, uh, one privacy scholar has called oversight theater as a kind of correlator of security theater, right? They make you take off your shoes. It's not really a very effective security measure, but you feel a lot safer. Um, I, I worry for the same reason about about oversight theater, about a structure that will put us at ease about the collection of data, um, but without any, you know, a, an actual meaningful check, you know, even if it is meaningful 
at inception as technology changes, as capacities change, and as the ways the system is used for purposes not initially intended change, as new data is added to the system. Um, I think uh, the... Um, you know, the, the Inspector General's report on the use of national security letters uh, shows, I think, very clearly how once uh, a system is put in place, that is a system of, of acquisition that made it easy for investigators to talk to telecoms who were there in the office with them, to get data rapidly, to try and do uh, social graph analysis or community uh, of interest analysis, that the safeguards that were in place there's an elaborate, I mean, national security letters do not require a huge burden of evidence. Uh, there's no judge involved, but there is a complicated approval process. Um, and the problem is that when that fell away, nobody knew. Uh, and it took years, it was years later, that we got a comprehensive report about what had been going on during that time. And one of the things we learned was that when a supervisor had attempted to make the agents who were getting information, um, essentially ignoring the approval process, scrawling on post-it notes, we'd sure like this information, and handing it to their friends at the telecommunications companies. Um, they, you know, they tried to make them start entering into a database, some record of what they were doing. Uh, and the problem is that they resisted. They essentially just refused to use the database. Um, and on the ground, the supervisors just proved unable to force compliance within the system. And again, if what you're counting on is periodic review by something like the Inspector General's office to detect whether the oversight system itself is, in, is functioning properly, you're unlikely to discover when things have gone wrong until it's really far too late. And that's assuming, you know, essentially that, that there's nothing deliberately nefarious going on, that they're just getting sloppy. Um, so while I, I think I share Shane's and, and, and I guess maybe John Poindexter's um, concern that we are too focused on acquisition and not enough at the steps that need to be taken to ensure that privacy is protected in the use of data after the fact, um, I am less sanguine about a uh, sort of a glittering a technological solution. There's a, a great scene where uh, to sell one of his ideas, Poindexter hires a, a Disney Imagineering designer to create this sort of sci-fi setup. Um, but there's no equipment, as it turns out, uh, behind, the, uh, you know, behind the fancy Star Trek uh, facade. Uh, and so I, I, I worry that something similar would occur uh, and that we would not know until it was too late. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. Some, gr some great comments. Uh, Shane, let me uh, augment the, the challenge that the book is a, it may be a, a little too friendly to, to Poindexter. I studied total information awareness, and I recall reading the, the documents that, that, that TIA was required to present to Congress when, when it was uh, that hot an issue. And there was some talk about privacy research in the, in the original documents, but it's talk of privacy research. And I wonder... It came to mind as I read your book. Has Admiral Poindexter uh, rejiggered his memory of events to highlight privacy and, and provide a post hoc answer to the critics? I don't, I don't see it as, as uh, a mendacious, but it would be something that a person would do. That I had an explanation for that, and nobody listened to me. Did, did, did you account for that in your reporting? What, how did you deal with that in the book? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question, um, because I think that, the, and, and a fair one too, because at the time there was. 
I think, more talk of the collecting and the analyzing data and comparatively less about the privacy part. Um, what I did in my research was actually went back and found the original briefing documents that were given to a number of officials uh, about TIA and then <clears throat> really had to verify there on one hand that, yes, this was a component of it and it was mentioned as sort of an integral part of the system. And then also I went and talked to people who were sort of the recipients, if you will, of these briefs that they were getting at the time and, and asked them, do you recall this being a part of it? Do you remember this being rather high up or, or something that was a key pillar of it? And their answer was yes. So, But to your question about whether he was sort of rejiggering his memory on this, I think it's fair to say that as the controversy heated up, and particularly after he left government, he wanted to draw more attention to the privacy component of it uh, and to drive people towards saying, now, see, look, but I was also looking at this, and this was also a a big concern of mine. Um, But I think that it was. I mean, I think it was present from the beginning. It wasn't talked about as much, I think, as it was later. But I think the reason for that is after the controversy exploded, it became more important for him to point back to the privacy protections part as sort of um, not to exonerate what he was doing, but to try and support him and, and to sort of counter the narrative that he was developing this kind of Orwellian data collection system. I thought I thought Julian's account of of uh, oversight theater was was incredible. It's and and uh, and well thought through. Uh, I've observed similarly along the same lines that that many in the national security bureaucracy are starting to redefine privacy as some as a situation where government has possession of the data or access to it, and but there are just enough programs and 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 oversight boards in place that they're not going to do anything wrong. And as Julian articulates well how, how that might fail, what's the, what's the status of, the, of privacy thinking from your point of view in the national security bureaucracy today? I don't think it's advanced significantly at all, and I think Julian's correct that this is, I mean, you, you run the risk of oversight theater and people saying, oh, yes, we're paying a lot of attention to this, and, and they're really not. Um, you know, we have oversight boards. We have, you know, inspectors general. Um, yeah, if they'd appoint anyone to it, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I don't sense at all that there has been a noticeable uptick uh, in let's get serious about privacy now. Um, but the issue is not going away. I mean, where we see this sort of rearing its head most recently is with the government's new expansive uh, powers into cybersecurity and monitoring the Internet for hackers and cyber threats and vulnerabilities in computer networks. Um, they know because they've, in fact, the White House's new cyber czar mentioned this in his speech in San Francisco last week, um, that the more the government tries to get involved in monitoring for hackers and electronic threats online, they run right up against those privacy concerns. And his comment on this recently, which I don't know if it's reassuring or not, was, we get it, we're working on it. Um, so we'll see, I guess. Um, the issue, though, it just simply doesn't go away. I think what the government has done more to the point of privacy, though, is, as you alluded to, kind of started to redefine it and to think differently about what it means. Um, there's a scene towards that in the, in the, at the very end of the book um, from a speech in 2007 where then the then deputy director of national intelligence, the number two intelligence official, is giving a speech to um, an intelligence symposium, basically. It's you know a, a collection of you know bureaucrats and people from the community. Um, and there was actually a couple of reporters present in the audience who caught this. Um, but he starts talking about the nature of privacy and anonymity in the information age. 
page and says that for a long time in this country, we've equated those two things with each other, that privacy equals anonymity, and it's no longer the case. There's no such thing as anonymity anymore. And basically goes on to say that in a generation of Facebook and Google, it is no longer, privacy is no longer a one-size-fits-all solution. And it is not for us, meaning I think he meant people in the government and of his age, to try and impose our definition of privacy on younger people and then people using information. And if you really kind of read between the lines what he was saying was privacy as we know it is dead. The government gets it. We're adapting to this new world, and you all should too. And, I mean, it was this really good of telling moment. I think where they are on privacy is um, – frankly, acknowledging that it doesn't mean the same thing anymore. And it's not that it's unimportant to them, but they are not going to be um, hemmed in by what I think they would regard as fundamentally quaint notions of privacy anymore. Did you have other thoughts you want to share in response to Julian's comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's you know, to, to address the question of, you know, the you know the story is sort of seen through the eyes of Poindexter um, and, and other officials in the book, too, but he's sort of the main one. Um, when I set out to write this book, I first off, I knew it would be something of a challenge and maybe a bit of a surprise to sort of write empathetically, if not even sympathetically, about someone like John Poindexter. Um, what I realized was that he existed largely, I think, as sort of something of a political caricature, uh, and that the more I got to know him and knew people who knew him, that, you know, surprise, he's a complex human being, you know, so are we all. So there was sort of a, a, almost a... Um, kind of undeniably tantalizing challenge there to try and write in a complex way about someone that was really a two-dimensional figure in a lot of people's minds. Um, I personally don't believe there's such a thing as objective journalism. I think that as journalists, we are inherently subjective because we're human beings. And when you write a narrative, it is not to say that you write a sympathetic portrayal of the people in a book, but you must use empathy to try and literally stand in these people's shoes and see the world as they see it. And it was a conscious stylistic choice to do that and to try and view the world from the perspective of a John Poindexter or a Michael McConnell or an Eric Kleinsmith, who is a figure in the beginning of the book. Um, and, yeah, there are risks that you have in doing that that sometimes you get rather close to the story. Uh, and maybe there are points, and I think it's fair to say there are points where perhaps it would have benefited from stepping back and maybe taking in the sort of widening the aperture a bit. But um, I do think that you don't get this kind of basic, compelling human story without getting very close to the sources. Uh, and I certainly won't deny that I probably got closer to John Boindexter than many of my sources over the years. Um, but I think ultimately it provides a richness and a texture uh, in the book. Um, that is hard to get if you're just sort of doing detached kind of journalism. It's certainly not an apology for John Boindexter, and I didn't set out for it to be that. Um, but uh, it is a view uh, of the world in many cases, you know, through his eyes. I think he probably takes up about half of the narrative and the pages that he's not on. He's sort of omnipresent. Uh, but I think that's just to give you a sense of where I was coming from as a writer and to adjust, uh, address Julian's critique. Um, I guess I knew going into this that this was going to require getting very close to people and that the book would ultimately um, reveal that as well. I don't think it's a bias, but I think that uh, you should certainly be aware of it. This is narrative. It's storytelling. It's, and it's going to be different than uh, what you would expect to see perhaps in a magazine or a newspaper. Any further comments before we go over to, uh, to the audience? I want to invite questions from all of you, and I want to allow you to ask for definitions of terms that have been used up on this stage, acronyms, technologies, et cetera, because there's a lot of complex stuff going on here. So please, let's, let's have questions. I see 
up here just behind the bar. Wait for the microphone. You need not identify yourself if you don't wish. I do oh. identification policies, and I don't think you should have to. Oh, believe me, I'm already on somebody's list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dane von Breikenrockert with the U.S. Bill of Rights Foundation. And here we are. This is the first uh, uh, census since 9-11. And I'm wondering, is that uh, looking at the form, particularly the long form, the kind of information that they're asking, and given that the government now seems to uh, carry the position that it does in privacy, do you think that we have any real concerns that, in fact, they will sneak a peek at some of these uh, forms that we fill out? And I've also noticed that they've announced this year that if anyone um, bucks the system, that they will be fined $10,000 and that they uh, where in the past they had no intention of enforcing, you know, they would just let it go. But this, this year uh, they're, they're putting in a hammerlock. And I'm just wondering, as, uh, looking at this being the first, you know, since 9-11, first census, them anding up the threat that if we don't cooperate and the lack of interest of the government in protecting our interests, what do you, both of you, think about the information that we're going to be giving the government in the census? Um, I have to admit, my census form, I think, came in the mail last night, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they want, want to know. I haven't looked at it yet. Um, I haven't given a lot of thought to that specific question on the census. I mean, I think it's my take that the government is already collecting so much information, sort of, especially kind of in the meta space when you're talking about transactional logs of phone records and emails and this kind of thing. Um, I haven't honestly given a co much thought to what they might want to do with the census in terms of trying to do something like demographic profiling or, or anything like that. Uh, I think certainly you would require, would, I would imagine it would require some sort of um, legal oversight mechanism for them to be doing that. Um, but to your larger question, I mean, maybe this is in a way of addressing specifically the census, my take is that there are very few technological and legal impediments anymore to the government getting information one way or another. That's not 100% the case, but information is sort of there and it will be obtained. I think that right now, generally speaking, their interest does lie in monitoring for foreign threats and foreign terrorists and their connections in the United States. My concern is that we're developing a capability and a capacity that in a different environment, in a different with a different mindset, that that could be turned in very targeted ways on individuals or groups of individuals. Um, I think it's fair to say that the government is really good at once someone is kind of in the sights, if you like, and they know a target, they're pretty good at finding out a lot of information about that person and diagramming his network. The hard part is these threats that are existing out there beyond the sites or beyond the crosshairs, and this book is largely about people who exist in that space. I guess the, the alarm call that I'm raising is if the government ever wanted to take that and target it very selectively for, other, for reasons that we might find appalling right now and unthinkable, um, they could, in fact, know a lot. Uh, so maybe that's a way of getting to this issue that you raised about the census. I don't know specifically if that feeds into it, but, you know, they're already getting so much information right now that, um, you know, that did give me enough concern there. Let me ask, to just broaden that question out just a little bit, what's your sense generally of intra-governmental data sharing and, and surveillance? Are the, are, is the national security bureaucracy getting access to data that is otherwise subject to Privacy Act protections? I did a report uh, on, uh, on data sharing among government agencies in the federal government showing that every, every other week uh, under the computer, computer Matching and Privacy Protection Act, ironically named, 
new new data sharing programs are being instituted. What's going on in terms of the the national security area there? Yeah, I think there there, there has been this remarkable shift. I think in, in in terms of sharing information and making it accessible and available. Um, the problem is that it's well. The problem from the analyst's perspective is that it's not all available from a single terminal. And you know, and maybe there's actually some measure of privacy protection built into a system whereby analysts have to literally go manually through different databases sometimes to try and piece together information about someone that they're looking at. Um, but yeah, my sense is that that information sharing did not just become sort of a buzzword. It became kind of a way of doing business much more after 9-11 than it was pre-9-11. It's still not uniform, uh, and there are obviously places where that breaks down. But, you know, my sense is, and I think this bore out in your reports as well, is that, you know, data is not exclusively siloed off in just one system of records and only a certain number of people can have access to it. It's cumbersome to get access to it, but I think it's clearly happening. Right here on the aisle. Um, my name is uh, Jonathan Posey. I'm a technology lobbyist. And a question really for both of you, uh, which you alluded to that private corporations have data that they are collecting on us and that the government, uh, in situations where they can't get that data by legal means, turn to the private corporations to buy them, uh, choice point axiom, so forth. Do either of you believe or, or what is your opinion on if we should restrict private corporations from not only collecting personal data on us, but then disseminating that out to other uh, groups and individuals. So, I mean, so, um, you know, know the the, um, Department of Justice is one of the largest single customers of Choice Point. They have a $20 million contract, and so the sort of standard, uh, I mean, mean, it did feel almost sort of silly sometimes debating you know, have various ways they can get these records from the phone companies when, you know, an enormous amount of information they just, they just sort of download from ChoicePoint as part of their contract. Um, I think the, probably the right locus there is the point of interface with the government um, and the use of those records within the federal system. Um, I think it's a lot harder to write well-designed um, rules for, information that's exposed and collected through through ordinary transactions. Um, I think it would be better if that were could be made more transparent. Um, I think, and, and again, there's sort of a, a problem with giving people access to the information that's held about them without creating an opportunity for breach. Um, right? I mean, anytime you sort of, you, I mean, sort of like, well, you know, people should be able to get from the from these firms, like, you know, the to know what kind of data is being held about them, but if you're sort of creating another aperture for for someone to find that information, um, so I think that's a that's a sort of difficult but distinct problem. There's a, there's a, a sort of one problem of we have special concerns about the government and what they can do um, because they have a lot of guns and, and uh, other advantages, um, and then a sort of broader question about what uh, what's what's sort of happening to privacy and how much control people have over their data, um, and I think usually transparency is the way to address the sort of private sector problem and internal rules probably for the for the when it crosses into the government space just to, yeah i have a story that kind of illustrates my personal level of concern about <clears throat> these relationships that the government have with has with 
private data collectors and aggregators. I actually did a story on ChoicePoint maybe five or six years ago, which for those who don't know, it's this company based in Alpharetta that collects public records in Alpharetta, Georgia, sorry. Um, and sort of their, their, their whole marketing campaign is that they do risk assessment. So, you know, if you're hiring a new employee or if you're hiring a nanny or whatever, they do the background checks, they sort of go through the credit scores, they tell you, is this person a risk? And that's obviously something that the government is very interested in as well, because they like to categorize people by risk. So I was interviewing uh, uh, a senior vice president there at ChoicePoint, and I said, well, to understand, I said, I want to get a sense of this relationship and this closeness that you have to people in the government. I said, hypothetically, if somebody from the CIA showed up at your office with a list of 12 names and said, I need your company to give me all the information you can on these names and I can't tell you why, would you do it? And without blinking, he said, yes. And to me, that said, okay. <laughs> What are the rules there? Are there any? Do you know what they are? Would you do this secretly? And it was just one of those very telling sort of moments that, you know, that's where the exchange happens. And what, what Julian's talking about, that kind of that, that interface there where the government now steps into a world in which the rules don't apply to it, perhaps, that, that, that normally do. And I think that's, that's, that's the place where we continue to, we need to continue to be concerned. And one of those places, perhaps, where you could sort of put a finger on, okay, Here's where we could have some transparency. Here's where we could have some rules. It was just stunning to me that he sort of almost glibly said, of course I would do it, because they asked. Just to bounce off that, a lot of the, I mean, sort of again, in, in, in the, uh, the vein of oversight theater, a lot of the structures that are set up to sort of reassure us about data collection have as a point of sort of interface with judicial oversight uh, the third party that's holding the data the government is looking for. So in most of these cases, we're not talking about surveillance involving the government going into your home, but the government going to a telecommunications company, to a bank, to a company like ChoicePoint, and getting records that are held in, in those data systems. And the, the way these are set up, there's these sort of elaborate systems where they can go before the FISA court or some other court to, um, to sort of appeal if they think a request for data is improper or exceeds the boundaries of the law. And the assumption is that the scrutiny and the oversight will occur here. If they exceed their bounds, these companies um, will, you know, sort of object, and then the court will get involved and, and say, uh, you know, no, enough. Um, but what we, I mean, everything we've learned, I think, about the last eight years shows that, that with extraordinarily rare exceptions, um, that's just a sort of preposterous hope. Um, that, that doesn't happen at all. Um, they have no interest in expending time and resources uh, defending the privacy of people who will never learn that they were surveilled because it is secret intelligence surveillance, which unlike Title III criminal surveillance is not eventually disclosed to the person who's the subject. Um, and so the question is, well, you know, you want us to spend you know, thousands of dollars on lawyers and time fighting the government and incurring their, you know, displeasure, uh, and the prize is, is what? That we, you know, is, is nothing. That, that just makes the news and, and, uh, and we get to disclose that we're handing over data to the government, which, you know, goes over wonderfully with our customers. Um, I mean, it's just incredibly bad oversight design. Um, and so the assumption that the you know, the, the companies there are going to be the, the, the protectors is, is wildly misguided. Let's take another question over here. Thank you. My name is uh, Richard Wetzel from the German Historical Institute. 
although I'm really here as a citizen rather than a historian. Um, thank you for those great presentations and for having this forum. I have uh, two questions. And the first one, the, the point of departure for me is it's so difficult to discuss these matters because those of us in the general public really still don't know what happened uh, under the Bush administration, let alone what's happening currently. You, you mentioned, of course, the, the famous uh, piece in the New York Times that revealed the existence of the warrantless uh, wiretapping program. But as time went on, uh, attentive newspaper readers quickly learned that that was already a scaled-back version of a program that was originally much larger. Some of you will recall the uh, famous scene at the uh, bedside in the hospital of Attorney General Ashcroft, which sort of read like a scene out of a B-movie to me. But, but that made very clear that there was a point where there was a face-off between the Justice Department and the White House. And all, even the most attentive newspaper reader, I think, could glean was that there must have been a program before this that was much more extensive. Now, we know that the scaled-back program that the New York Times uh, revealed meant that all communications between Americans and persons abroad were under surveillance, potentially phone calls, emails. Am I right to conclude that this must mean that before the face-off with Ashcroft and his deputies, in fact, all telephone communications, even within the U.S., were under surveillance. So my first question is, can, can you shed some light on this? And if you also don't know the answer after meeting with all these people, uh, then my other question would be, is there any chance we're ever going to find out? My second question is, going forward, um, will there still be a place for the courts? Because you, I understood your main point to be, it's much more complicated. It's not about individual wiretapping. It's about you know, looking for large aggregates of data, and we're talking about, well, how will some sort of system of checks and balances be installed here that works? I really don't trust any internal checks, because as the story of the national security letters reveal, they don't work very well. But how could you imagine sort of a system, a sort of retrofitted system could work that would have some supervision of this larger collection effort, but that would still involve the FISA court or other courts. Thank you. Um, well, why don't I answer your first question, and maybe Julian wants to look at the second as well, but we can do both. Um, what, what I write in the book and what my reporting showed in terms of the evolution, if you like, of what was broadly called the terrorist surveillance program or the president's surveillance program or Stellar Wind or the bag or whatever you, know, you want to call it, um, was that the, the germ of the idea begins not long after 9-11 when NSA finds itself in need of broadening the aperture of the surveillance that it wants to do. And Mike Hayden, who was the director of NSA at the time, concludes that he has existing authority to do that under an executive order, actually fashioned in the Reagan administration, coincidentally, called Executive Order 12333. And he tells lawmakers that NSA is broadening its scope of collection and that we have existing authorities to do that. There's some back and forth between him and the House Intelligence Committee in particular on this question. Nancy Pelosi, somewhat famously, I think, writes this letter that says, I'm not sure I quite understand what you're talking about here, and I'm not quite sure whether or not you can do this or whether you need to have a new order. Um, as it was described to me by people who were familiar with that 
collection that was an, that was actually going up on targeted what they called hot numbers. There, there were people that NSA wanted to go after that they thought were tied or connected to the 9/11 attacks. It is also the case that the FISA court issued a number of warrants immediately after the. I think Judge Lambert actually was. Didn't he? Was there a report that he was, he was actually issuing them or at least preliminary orders, I think, from his phone at one point? Or he was driving by the Pentagon when the planes hit and, like, people came to get him to you know, start issuing orders. So this is kind of happening in the mix. So it's around October of 2001 when George Tenet, the director of Central Intelligence, begins making the rounds with the intelligence chiefs and says, Do you, are you doing everything that you can right now to prevent another 9-11? Are you doing everything, you've got everything that you need? And Hayden's response, and he's testified to this, is not within my current authority. So Hayden goes down, briefs administration officials, the president, the vice president are there, and essentially lays out a plan by which they could do expanded surveillance of what would be classified as international communications because one end of the communication is outside the United States even though one end is here. And so thus begins the sort of first stage of the terrorist surveillance program. There was the, Reportedly there was some er, 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 desire by Cheney and David Addington to do pure domestic warrantless surveillance and, I th- and the reporting that I've seen on this, and I think it's probably accurate, is that Hayden pushed back on that. But he did want to construct a system that whereby they could do what he later called hot pursuit of terrorist communications without having to go through the FISA warrant process. It's after that that NSA starts also going to telecommunications companies and wanting access to the metadata as well. And as I've always sort of imagined the program to sort of make sense of it in my mind is that in the perfect world if this thing worked – is that you'd have all this metadata that would tell you where all the patterns of communications were. And as soon as one of them you know, hit the tripwire of suspicious, look suspicious over here, NSA now has the authorities to go zap right down and find that particular communication and pull it out and look at it. And so there were layers to it, if you like, that evolved from you know, the initial stage after 9-11 of we have the authority to do some expanded surveillance, we need more authority to do expanded surveillance. Now we want to go even beyond that as well. And it was my understanding from talking to people who were involved and people at the White House that it was the expanded metadata surveillance part that triggered the standoff uh, in, the, in the hospital room. And we're still, I think, not entirely sure what part of it it was. But it, it, it revolved around that data and the collection and use of that information. So. There's a uh, Newsweek profile of uh, uh, Thomas Tam, uh, the, one of the NSA whistleblowers. Um, I think it was by Mike Isikoff, but but uh, that I think suggested it's the the data mining of the of the call data records that was uh, sort of behind the, the sort of famous uh, Comey uh, Ashcroft scene at the bedside. Um, I don't know the the. I think one thing to note about about the question of, of domestic collection, um, I haven't seen any indication that they were really just sort of sweeping in all domestic stuff on purpose. On the other hand, if the reason or if one of the reasons they're saying they need to do this kind of uh, uh, broader surveillance is that on a modern packet switch network, um, a sort of oversight system that works on geography is uh, is unreliable, then you know, in a sense, anything that is that that, that uh, you know attempts to to solve that problem is because of the nature of the problem. If the nature of the problem is that you can't reliably know where people are, um, then any solution to that will almost definitionally end up getting uh, domestic stuff. I think uh, 
you can do architectural things to reduce that risk. Uh, one of the things that's been pointed out is that the uh, intercept, uh, uh, the filters that were part of Stellar Wind um, were at um, which were basically in domestic hubs in San Francisco where domestic stuff was flowing, not at the beachhead where the international cables come in. Um, I mean, again, again, somewhat less convenient, but as an architectural measure, if you wanted to make over-collection less likely, you'd basically you'd stick the, um, you'd split the pipe there. We have time for one or maybe two more questions. I know there are a lot of students here, and I'd like to invite any of the students who has a question to, to give it a shot. I will write your uh, letter of recommendation to grad school if you ask a question. <laughs> no takers? Okay, I saw a hand back here in the, in the turquoise, second row behind the bar. I'm Dale Brown. I'm here as an individual. I just wanted to ask how this related to the corporate databases, such as um, credit cards that keep track of your purchases, the loyalty programs where, you know, um, you, I don't know, you put in a card and get a discount and that's recorded. Programs, um, for example, in order to get um, my return done at Radio Shack, I have to give a um, I have to write down my address and give them my address. And when you go on an 800 number, you have to state your address before they'll even answer a question. So I just wondered if you could comment on customer relation management strategies of corporations and how that relates to any of this. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a clear technological kind of analog. I mean, you know, <clears throat> people who do data mining, if you want to call it that, and I should emphasize Poindexter doesn't like to call it data mining, but whatever, pattern analysis, I kind of think you can lump this stuff in all together to sort of make sense of it. We're talking about trying to make sense out of lots of information. Um, you know, credit card fraud detection, these kinds of customer tracking programs. I mean, essentially, I think, and, you know, Jim, you chime in on this too because you've studied it, is essentially the same kinds of things. I mean, you're trying to develop um, predictable patterns of behavior based on people's transactions. And in the case of of marketing, it's trying to understand what their preferences are to then try and market products to them that they will want to buy. Uh, I think where this starts to break down, though, in the terrorism context is that, you know, the simple way answer to that is, well, if I'm a terrorist, I'm probably going to do everything that I can to alter my behavior and behave unpredictably. And I don't see how, just because we can develop an algorithm for credit card fraud detection. That means, by extension, we can develop an algorithm for trying to find out when someone's, you know, buying a plane ticket en route to go plant a bomb someplace. And, I mean, people who are serious about this stuff will, will grant you that the analogy is not one-to-one. -one. Um, but I think it's useful for, for all of us in trying to think about what do they mean when they're talking about mining this data to think about how companies are doing it, you know, all the time with our information. The, que the question may have been, um, that's, that's important to think about, of course, but the question may have been uh, how closely networked are the loyalty programs and, the, and the, the databases of customer information to the kind of surveillance, telecommunications surveillance that you talked about. Is that going on? Is it starting? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there have been a number of reports. I mean, I write about this in the book, and there have been reports elsewhere uh, is that, that, that the that much of what NSA has been interested in doing is not just looking at telecommunications data, but also marrying it up with financial data as well. Um, so I think the, the short answer to that is yes. I mean, there are certainly means by which the government can obtain access to this kind of information, whether it's through, you know, a FISA warrant where you're doing electronic surveillance or a Patriot Act, you know, record searches or NSLs. Um, you know, it, it's, it's in the mix, I think, is the, is the way to look at it. Last question. On the aisle, up toward the back there. The white shirt. 
advocate for liberty? <laughs> Hi, Jim. Chris Calabrese from the ACLU. Um, we have been concerned and have kind of given Google some heat for their purported you know, alliance of some sort with the NSA. Now, I think the details of what they're trying to do are, are very unclear at this point. But when I listen to you sort of say, wow, the government is collecting everything, and I, I completely agree with you. There's a massive collection going on, and I completely agree that there isn't a real co commensurate ability to analyze it. I think to myself, who would I really like to put on the issue of analyzing a massive amount of information? What's the one entity that might actually be able to pull this off? And I, I think it's Google. So that terrifies me because, you know, it's the combination of their corporate knowledge with the massive amount of information that's being collected. So I guess I'm wondering if, A, there was, you know, you saw anything in your research that was sort of like the NSA trying to bridge this divide, you know, this analytic divide by reaching out to private corporations or anything specifically that you might have heard about Google or, you know, how they might be involved in this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's often the case, I think, that people respond to this, you know, conundrum of so much data and we can't make sense of it to just, well, Google does it. Why can't we do it? I mean, there are technological issues at play, like the government databases are often structured differently, and it's, you know, they're collected, you know, through different means. And it, it's sort of a, there's a mechanical process to that. Um, generally, what I've found is the companies, though, that are kind of interested in helping the government do this analysis problem are big companies, but they're the ones you've already heard of that operate in Washington. I mean, it's like the Raytheons of the world and, you know, and, and others like them. And then very small kind of, you know, almost startup software companies. I mean, Poindexter is on the board of directors of a software company that is trying to do exactly this right now and has, and has contracts with the government. So there's something of a circle to this. Um, my take, though, on Google sort of in its partnership with the NSA is it's kind of, it's, it's a bit stunning because I think this is a company that at least publicly has prided itself on sort of being distanced from that. And, you know, we don't cooperate with these kinds of things because what the NSA does is bad or, you know, they have a bad reputation. What they're doing now, though, my sense is, and you're right that the details aren't clear, is less helping them make sense of information and more handing over information about vulnerabilities in Google's network so that the NSA can then, I guess, help them try and protect themselves <laughs> so we think we're not really sure um, but you know this I think what you're going to see to me this sort of what's euphemistically often referred to as public par public private partnership is I think the next wave uh, of interface between government and corporations and it will largely happen around cybersecurity. Um, I suppose that would be sort of you know book two in a way I have often sort of contemplated the extent to which Google sort of penetrates my life through Gmail and Gchat and records of all these things I do, uh, and and it's you know and, and Google Maps on my phone, and it occurred to me you know God, you know if there were a government that had the level of detailed information about everything I do that Google does, like it would it would sound like you know you know some kind of insane totalitarian dystopia that you had, had must have made up. Um, so I, I I do get antsy about uh, about that kind of collaboration. Um, I, I do actually just want to use this as, a, as an opportunity to mention a. a I think something that, that is brought out in Tim Shark's great book, uh, Spies for Hire, and in, in Jim Bamford's book that I think is worth keeping in mind, because you keep seeing names in this, like, you know, Booz Allen Hamilton uh, and, you know, and Raytheon, and, and it's worth, I think, mentioning that the um, utility of a lot of these tools, that is the, you know, how good they are at sifting through the data, um, 
is in part, again, as, as, as sort of Poindexter himself learned, a sales presentation. It's, you know, it's imagineered. Um, and we've gotten used to kind of understanding the sort of iron triangle dynamic in the context of the national security state and understanding that the, you know, wonderful awesomeness of this new bomber is going to be colored by the desire of someone to sell that wonderful new bomber. Um, and I, I think I'd, I'd like to return that level of skepticism to some of the claims that are made on behalf of, of various kinds of pattern analysis technologies. I'm not sure that our book forum today will give you a sunnier outlook on life walking out than you had coming in today. But thank you all very much for coming. Please join me in thanking Shane Harris, Julian Sanchez.